The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Kia ora koutou. welcome to a summer reissue of Dietary Requirements, the spin-off's food podcast. We're taking a break to drink a lot and eat a lot without having to tell you about it. So today's episode, from the heart of lockdown, recorded with Henry Oliver of Metro Magazine about the beautiful essay he wrote about the phenomenon of sourdough baking that rose from the ashes of COVID-19 where we were all locked away in our kitchens. It's just flour and water, and it's just fucking amazing. Dietary Requirements, the spin-offs food podcast. Each month we get together to talk shit about the cultural, social and political function of food with some of the buzziest people in the New Zealand scene. It's also an excuse to eat and drink delicious things. Alice has made us a sourdough loaf this week. I have. It's not my best work, but I'll explain that later. Could be a bit taller really, couldn't it? It's a bit of a, it's like a flat rugby ball. Frisbee. Frisbee. It's a frisbee. Okay, rugby ball. Frisbee was A rugby-shaped frisbee. <laughs> it looks like rugby it's been shaped. hacked by Jack the Ripper or something. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> just because um, I did some random... Um, Slip. What are they called? Scores. Scores. Not slits. That sounds dirty. Yeah, okay. All right. But Score. they kind of... Aggressive scores. It just, yeah, it's all a bit fucked. I tried to make it at work yesterday and it was a very stressful day and I overproved it, okay? It was, it was hard. Well, I'm your host, Simon Day, and I'm joined by, as you've heard, the Spinoff's food editor, Alice Neville. Kia ora. Hospitality advocate and entrepreneur, Sophie Gilmore, who's just got off the phone with the Treasury. Kia ora, Simon. Chatham House Royals. So. Yeah. But I thought, <laughs> yeah. are, we allowed, are we allowed to say you've been on the phone with the Treasury? Well, yeah. you did. We have now. <laughs> this podcast and our food coverage would not be possible without the support of our wonderful sponsor, Freedom Farms. They believe that everyone who eats meat has a responsibility to know how that animal has been farmed. Their pork, bacon and free-range eggs are fucking delicious and without them we wouldn't be here, so please buy their goods. It's been a while though, the last time we spoke we were reporting from the heady realm of Level 1 and this episode was actually meant to be our first live event. Unfortunately, two months later we're now in Level 2.5 after a trip back to Level 3 Face masks are a thing and COVID-19 is still very much floating around Auckland like the smell of a barbecue on your clothes and hair. Oh, nice and analogy. The, uh, I was actually going to say like after you've been to um, pasture and actually used oh, memories, yeah. uh, What about how, do you remember when you used to wake up in the morning with cigarette smoke in your yeah. hair yeah. before the, the smoking days. laws changed? Yeah. So weird. That's what COVID is. Were you allowed so. to smoke at your bar, Henry? Nah. Nah. Nah, it's actually that. So the live event was meant to be a celebration of sourdough because as part of Object Space Gallery's Occam Lecture Series, our friend Henry Oliver wrote a wonderful essay titled Oven Spring about the phenomenon of sourdough baking during lockdown. I believe the booklet itself is no longer available, sold out, although it's free. But Woohoo! Free sold out, yeah. I mean, I think they kept some to give out in person when they reopened, which they are I now. They are open they, under level two rules. So if they haven't got rid of those 30 copies yet, 
get into get, object space. Or, and this will um, upset Henry, you can see him read the essay <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, live like, um, on objectspace.org.nz. Nice. So Henry is the first person to ever reappear as a guest of Dietary oh, Requirements. First regular guest. What, what a comeback. Yeah. Thank you. He's the editor and publisher of Essential Services Zine, another lockdown sort of child. Yeah. And he is the former and now current editor of the Resurrected Metro magazine. Yeah. And a very close friend of the spin-off family. Yay. Welcome back, Henry, uh-huh. and congratulations oh. on the rebirth of Metro, the Thank publication you. of Oven Spring and of Essential Services. Thank you. Oh, it's an honor, honor to be the first returning guest, I tell you. It's a beautiful essay <laughs> that really captures the emotions of lockdown via the microcosm of sourdough baking. I thought we could start with, because I often see when people get to the front of the queue at Daily Bread, they'll ask for a loaf of sourdough, and you'll see uh, the servers be, you know, kindly cringe just a little and explain that it's all sourdough. <laughs> yeah. So what what is sourdough, and what is the sourdough that you found yourself baking during lockdown? I mean, sourdough just very broadly is bread made with a, a leaven or a, a natural f- fermented uh, yeast rather than commercial uh, dry yeast. That's kind of like, um, so I think before, around about 100 years ago, all bread essentially was sourdough. Um, but now, I mean, so there you, you can make a lot of things out of sourdough, but now sourdough sort of in common parlance sort of refers to, I think, a reasonably sort of specific type of French, mostly kind of influenced kind of country loaf, I think is what... what <laughs> a rustic loaf. A rustic loaf, yeah. Of which, you know, within that there are many varieties as well and, and you can do a lot of, within those parameters. But, yeah, it's weird because it is kind of like, well, technically sourdough is kind of... You can make the process almost, rather yeah, than the like, end like result. you could make kind of almost any bread and make it sourdough, but, but and things like dosa is sourdough. Yeah, exactly. Well. Mm-hmm. But it, it was also like if I told you I was bringing a loaf of sourdough and turned up with a dosa, you know, like <laughs> you would have an expectation of what sourdough is. So and you made that point that it's a European interpretation, you know, like I'm thinking sourdough and soup or. You know, like the, we just, I associate it straight away with a bunch yeah. of things that we have decided it goes with. Yeah, and I mean, I kind of, I had in an earlier draft kind of a bunch of like history stuff in there and how, and I think one of the sort of, I think this, oh, what's his name? Something the Elder, and he was in ancient times and he he wrote the first ever encyclopedia, that well, the first known encyclopedia. And he talks about how different people made uh, different types of bread out of different types of starters and how some even didn't bake it. So they would like use this sourdough um, starter basically and ferment their flour and then eat eat the dough raw. <laughs> the goo. Yeah. That's quite cool. Like, he was talking about how, you know, like in different parts of, well, um, I think then, you know, the Roman Empire, you know, people would use like beer as, and their starter and stuff. and So the, there's sort of infinite variety of with yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the starter then. What is a starter and is it actually alive? You know, like what does feeding it mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is alive. I mean, it is, it's basically there is yeast kind of everywhere. There are, there are airborne yeasts um, as well as on surfaces and all sorts of things. Um, so to make a starter for this purpose, you're basically getting your flour, some water, and by by leaving it exposed to air but also touching surfaces, it's going to get yeast from the air or from the surfaces, and eventually like those are going to ferment and grow. And by giving it more flour and more water, um, you're giving it, Food essentially, so it, it, so it, the fermented part basically like then takes over the becomes I don't know, infects <laughs> all of the, all of that flour and then becomes something that you can then add even more flour and more water to and make a loaf of bread. And were so, you were you baking before lockdown? Oh, uh, not really. I mean, 
No, I've never really been much of a baker, much more of like uh, a cook. Um, it's actually a big question we had in our uh, <laughs> Facebook um, page for the podcast. Is, is cooking and baking the same sort of art or are they distinct different I things? I think they're broadly quite different. I mean, there's Completely definitely overlapping. for me. But um, I, you know, tend not to be like a recipe follower and so, you know, I try and bake and fail at it usually because I don't follow things properly or, you know, I'm not exact about things. So, like, when I first started trying to make sourdough during lockdown, you know, I didn't have a scale. So all this stuff that I was just kind of riffing. um, Yeah, that can't be a thing. No, and then as soon as as you could, like, mail order stuff again, you know, I I got a, a scale straight away. So this was very much a kind of... You know, I'd made the odd, like, focaccia or whatever, but this was my first sort of serious foray into It was a baking. leading question as well because I wanted to snitch on Alice um, <laughs> for doing illicit level four started dealing. No, well, um, it actually wasn't me. I'll have to correct you that. It was the other Alice. Ah. But it ah. came, so. I didn't even a, know Alice Webladol was a baker. Well, she wasn't until I gave, I gave Alice Webladol, our colleague who has shares my name, some starter, <laughs> some starter just before lockdown, so it was legit. She then gave some of that starter, dropped it at Henry's house during lockdown. But they're in the same neighbourhood. Didn't have any contact. I think no it's contact. low level. It's not like you know contactless delivery. It's not Mount Roskill Which honestly has to be one of the most level. bullshit things I've ever heard of. But it's not really that it's. It's not the delivery of the – is it the delivery? The leaving your house for a non-essential purpose that's the I issue. Because yeah. you're allowed to just leave stuff on people's doorsteps. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, she was. She said she was going for walks. For she was on a state-sanctioned yeah. walk. Yeah. You guys are wild. Fine. I mean, I, I'll just sort of um, – full disclosure. I had maybe a year and a half before that, when I – or even longer, I think. Maybe two years ago – when I was working at the spin-off, uh, Alice, this Alice, me. had given me some starter because I had, at that point, thought it would be a good idea to start trying to bake sourdough. And I took that home and um, left it on the counter and didn't feed it and it died. And I didn't <sighs> make a single loaf with it. So He killed it. I've killed many a sourdough, including when I went out to the Wild Wheat factory, I got Andrew who's the owner and head baker, to give me some of their sourdough starter. And I was, like, treating it as though it was this prize. And then I just let it die. So yeah. disappointing, Sophie. Yeah, but it doesn't have a like it doesn't have the same place in my everyday life as it did in lockdown, which is why mm. I loved your essay, because it's like it did just become something else, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Ed Werner, who's um, the chef and owner at Pasture, who's a sort of character in the book, he keeps I so he had a he had a sourdough starter and the cleaner found it and threw it away. Oh. Um so he now tells me that he keeps one going, another one that's sort of hidden in a corner, another one in the fridge, and then as ultimate backup, another one in the freezer. Yeah. Nice. They're quite mythical things, eh? What's the story about the daily bread starter? Didn't it like oh, illegally immigrate to New Zealand? I don't and know. It's that like it's 400 like hundreds years of years old. Yeah. Or 700 years old or something. Uh, it's so funny. The, I don't Like how there was a. <laughs> wasn't it when Nancy Silverton. Uh, it's a bit of a like, get yeah. your hand off it, Daryl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't care Not though. Not with like daily I, bread, but in general, when people are like, this is an ancient 300 year old starter, it's like, come on. If you've, made, if you've managed yeah. to sell the myth, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. Would okay, you like good. to know the provenance of my starter, which is also Henry's starter? Yeah, why not? That came from Jerome Ozich, who yeah. used to do sourdough workshops. Sophie and I both killed one of Jerome's oh, starters. Well, I didn't. I kept it alive. I did it several years ago, and I've kept the starter alive the whole time. Quick question before of. we move on from starters. I only found out recently that you can <laughs> leave it in the fridge for a period of weeks and just feed it before you want to use it. Yeah, you can. You have to bring it to room temperature yeah. first. But. Yeah, but I thought you still had to feed it every two days, even though you weren't using it. No, I'd leave it in the fridge only for up to a week. I think that's what Jerome said. Like when I went to Europe last year for three weeks, when in the days when you could do that, I gave it to my friend Ginny, who has also been on this podcast, to look after. 
Did she do a good job? She did a wonderful job. So it's still alive. Still alive. Okay, yeah. so I can't yeah. leave it in the fridge for three weeks well, and I mean, just give it a big feed before well, you, you can, can you can. I think you can. I mean, yeah. the more you feed it, if you feed it a lot, but not so much that it dies, then that's more time for it to grow. Yeah. Okay. But I, I mean, I through some trial and error, I don't think that like, I think bringing something that's sort of dormant and then feeding it once and then making bread, you're much better to like go through three days of a cycle or something yeah. like, okay. you know, like feed it three days in a row and then make yeah, bread. Yeah, the yeah. kind of advice you is, get it, um, yeah, and try not to put in the too much. I do <laughs> sometimes, but yeah. yeah. And are you feeding equal amounts water and flour? I do, yep. yes. And like small amounts, like 40 grams. Yeah, tw- yep. Yeah, I mean, for me now, like as little as possible. Yeah. So try and keep it at yeah, quite it feels small like quantities. You're diluting it, doesn't it? Well, if you if you're using sort of equal parts, one theory is that you use equal parts starter, flour, and water. Yeah. So sometimes you watch these videos on YouTube, and there's these American dudes who have got like a hundred grams of starter, and then they're adding a hundred grams of mm. water and a hundred grams of yeah. flour. You end up just, you know, you end up discarding a lot of starter, and you can use starter to make things. So you can make um, crumpets or pancakes and all stuff. So it's not like necessarily a waste. But if you don't want to, if you're kind of using it as part of like you're baking bread on on a weekday, you don't necessarily want to do all that mm. stuff. So so then you can go like, well, if I've only got, if I wake up in the morning and I've only got sixty grams of starter. It's not a big deal to discard 40 grams yeah. of, of it. You know, it's not like you're throwing away. So, is that what you're doing? You're going back to 20 and then adding yeah. 20 flour to I mean, basically, water. yeah. Mm. So, you do double the amount of. Um... Well, you can do either. Some people do equal. I do 10 grams starter, 20 water, 20 flour okay. for maintenance, and then double that for baking. But some people do equal amounts starter, flour, water. So, I okay. think this is part of the reason this phenomenon exists there is so much um to talk about and we haven't even got past the start <laughs> yeah sorry yeah. Yeah. sorry no, it's, no, it's, no, it's no. fine i think that's what that, that is why we're here today yeah because the next step is even once you get to the loaf is there's so much narrative around what a good sourdough looks like smells like tastes like and i think we have an example today we have an example from ellis of what Maybe an average loaf of, maybe even a shit loaf of sourdough. Well, uh, <laughs> looks like we'll see. We'll see when we cut into it. True. Definitely doesn't we'll look analyze great, the crumb and judge it. Yeah, the crumb's not going to be great because I was trying to make it like on a tray at work. I didn't have enough space. What is the? Is there rye flour in that or yep. wholemeal? Uh, both. There's white flour. Well, it's like unbleached flour from Millmore Downs, which is kind of white but not fully white, and a bit of wholemeal and a bit of Rye. Nice. Hmm. So what are we looking for when when we're talking about a good loaf of sourdough? Well, it'll be higher than that one, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> bit and of then, spring. Bit of spring. What is the spring, the the, the, the height, the pop? Well, the, the, the spring is, well, well, oven spring is when your loaf first goes into the oven, there's going to be a burst, a burst of energy, which is like hopefully like the hydration hitting the heat and then it's going to the, the initial rise is going to be like that's the most of the rise you're going to get is basically straight away even though you're not going to be able to see it that's kind of like the oven spring and and for me that's one of the fun things is like you don't know if you've got that yeah. and, until it's too Take late like, and there's no control over it but that kind of thing of like the way that um the way that sourdough has developed as this like not just a kind of food but as a sort of aesthetic object largely due to Instagram, is like a really high round loaf um, is what's sort of prized with a sort of very open, consistent crumb, you know, like with... What's the, the crumb? Well, the, the inside. Yeah. The, way that, the way that it looks with the bubbles inside <laughs> is not is called the crumb. <laughs> yeah, so ideally <laughs> to by... To put it academically. <laughs> by having an open crumb is quite bubbly, but it's not like you don't want huge bubbles. You want like lots and lots of a consistently sized bubble is kind of like the aesthetic ideal. Shall we test Alice's crumb life? Yeah. Yeah. Should I cut into it? But I think that really like... Sophie. 
I'll do it. Okay, because my hands are covered in dog food. I'm secretly feeding my dog <laughs> under the table. It's and a food podcast. All, poor, poor all mammals is, can eat. He's squeaking toys and I'm rustling bags. I'm going and... with the um, score, okay. the angle of your score. Oh, it's looking quite good, Alice. Well, it's too flat, that's for sure. Because even Ed gets pancakes, right, Henry? Yeah, I mean, that was, a, that yeah, was one of the better. nice things to hear was like, here's this person that's um, very experienced. Not and, bad. And they that. still get flat loaves sometimes. Mm. It looks, I mean, you look, it's not, the, it's not great, but it'll do. But really what I think is, is part of, and this is part of, I think, the problem of, of, of the kind of beauty ideal of, yeah. of bread baking is that different crumbs are probably actually best for different types of uses of bread. You know, like having a very open, airy crumb might be great for some uses, but then... You know, like you're putting butter and peanut butter. <laughs> Terrible for honey, you know, because like honey just liquefies and falls right through it. But you know, I also like, especially if you've got rye and stuff. You know, like like German breads are very dense. You know, like and some breads are meant to be dense, and dense bread can be good bread. You yeah. know, even though it doesn't look cool on Instagram. I think True. I'm definitely like my ideal is quite a moist inside. Yeah, you know, like the thing for cooking. I'm I'm finding now a lot when you buy them, they're getting drier and drier and bigger and bigger. You know, yeah. like this is like there must be like kilo loaves now that you buy. Yeah, and it's quite a dry, crummy situation inside. Whereas that's what I like on the inside. Nice. Yeah, I think you've nailed that, Ella. Well, I've nailed it, but it's okay. Sadly, we don't have much butter left because no, it's I, enough well, for I like, a slice. I each. like a lot of butter, but um. I think that that's that's the thing, right? So, like, I had, um, I think last week, what was a real uh, success moment was mm. this, like, very springy loaf. But then, but then, like, after, you know, after a, a day or so, once you cut into it, it was so springy and light that by cutting into it, it kind of started to collapse, right. you know, as soon as you put any pressure on it and... Um, so, yeah. Alice's, so there are upsides to all these different things, yeah. So Alice's crumb is it's quite dense, but with some nice consistent bubbles as well. What are we looking for in taste? Because we're about to taste it. Um, I think it's the slightly sour slightly flavour, sour. Mm. is how you describe it generally. Yeah, I don't, I not too sour. And yeah. I, I like it quite salty, and this is this mm. is good. Yeah, I love. Um, I think that's really important too. Are you putting like? Is this five? No, that's not 500 gram loaf. How big's that? Don't know. Oh, well, I use 500 grams of flour. Okay, so it is Maybe 500. Maybe um, And how much salt? 11 grams. Yeah, I put 10. I think I, I could do more. I love the specificity of um, the recipe I use. Yes. Yeah. How's what the taste, think? team? Mm, it's really good. It's really good. Delicious. Because the taste, excuse me for talking with my mouthful, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's another part of the myth, is it taps into umami, which has mm. got it's a whole nother narrative about it. Yeah. What's the umami and sourdough Venn diagram? Well, yeah, I mean, this is a, a big thing, is, is that umami is, is a, one, of, one of the flavours, which is a kind of um, intense savouriness and, and, you know, Typically, it's it's interesting, but um, you know, it's become this thing of like brown meat, um, hard cheeses all have this savouriness that is very kind of Moorish and addictive. And one of the kind of food trends of the last decade or so has been this like real heavy leaning into umami. umami. Um, and I think this is part of like what a good sourdough loaf is like that. You know, I've, you know, we're having it with butter, and I, to me, a really good sourdough only needs butter. Like, you, yeah, sure, you can also have toppings on it or whatever, but I think yeah. the bread itself should have a lot, be very flavorful, and especially mm. with the crust, you know, like the crust is a big part of that. Like having that, like the the same thing on a, on bread, having like a browned, like past golden crust is the same of having like a sear on a steak. You know, like the the 
umami in the steak really comes from the sear more than the meat itself. So know. the flavor of the crust is different to the flavor of the inside. So yeah. it's all kind of doing its thing. And I, and I quickly want to apologize to Alice for shit talking her loaf earlier because that's, <laughs> that's okay. really it's fucking good. It's all right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's tasty. That's the thing. Even when you fuck up, it's still like I've never made an inedible loaf. So I made an inedible focaccia during lockdown. Oh, and did that's you? like. How'd you do that? I don't know. It looked amazing when it came out of the oven. It looked like I was in Italy somewhere. And then it collapsed. And then I no, it didn't collapse because it's got nowhere to collapse to. Really, it's quite um, thin. But then I cut into it, and it was uh, just mush. It was like really mm. thick paste. It hadn't baked through. It was, yeah, it was weird. So I think the the thing about like the bread is like that the the form of it is largely technique, and then the flavour is much more just about ingredients. So mm. like, um, oh, what's his name? Bill Billford who wrote Heat, this book about him learning to cook Italian food. Michael Paul? Oh, no, sorry. I'm thinking he's now just released a, a new book about learning. He moved to France and learned French cooking. He, he published this article in the New Yorker recently where he visited this baker of like a multi-generational baker at this Patrice village or whatever and was like, what's the secret to the flavor of your bread? Thinking that it was going to be this like elaborate, technical thing and he was just like oh it's good flour you know <laughs> like, yeah 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 let's not overcomplicate <laughs> things it's interesting is that i think um i agree with you i had so many loaves of sourdough in lockdown that i started to wonder what to put with them like i love a fried egg but really you just want it with butter mm. <laughs> i think I, I think i i do like it dipped in a really grassy olive oil but yeah it's still second to butter and I think maybe having that on the side of some soup or something is Amazing. when it's at its best. Yeah. But I think um, this taught me, making loaves like this in lockdown taught me um, the process, which you explain really well. Um, but then it made me go, okay, well, when I'm in Auckland, in my normal life, I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by places that are selling these loaves to us all the time. So what is missing from the market and I've been making the one from uh, the girls that owned Wear Bros before, oh, yeah. where Honey yeah. Bones mm. used to be. I love that place. And so her recipe it's a seeded wholemeal sourdough and you make it in a loaf tin and you cook it for 50 minutes and it is unreal. To be honest it's actually not that far away from Vogels but, yeah, yeah. but it's like um, there's something, it's better than Vogels there's something quite exceptional about that which I can't, like, you can't buy a great, unless I'm missing it somewhere, like a great seeded wholemeal sourdough loaf. So that's mm. my new gig at the moment. Yeah, good point. I need to try Because yours is square in a, in a tin. In right? a loaf tin, yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it holds its outside and you can slice it literally like you would a loaf of Vogels. I'm One beef I have with Sophie. Sorry. I'm, my bad, Alice. One beef I have with Sophie's... Uh, tastes in food is how she likes extra thin Vogels and toasts it into almost being a biscuit. Oh, mm. waste of time, man. <laughs> yeah, it's good. But I do I do think that there is going to be um, the, the, I think the, the kind of big bulbous sourdough loaf is like I think the next kind of cool bread will be like denser tin tin based like shit you saw it here first guys I think that's kind of like the next that's the next thing for me it was really satisfying having yeah. done this to death to make that yeah. and to watch it like blow up in the oven tin because it's obviously not cooked in a bain marie and not a bain marie a bloody dutch oven but um yeah it, and it's equally delicious again with butter so that shop that was where bros where Honey Bones now is was very um, was a toast shop, and you could order one slice or two slices, and you could choose the toppings on them. Um, so good! It was really, really yummy, and I remember that was like where pickled eggs took off. In yeah. Auckland. yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I really love that one with butter too. So maybe that's just what we're coming back to: flour and butter and water are delicious. Simplicity is a thing at the moment, right? Mm. Sure is. We've got a um, a simple sourdough tin loaf on the spin-off. I'm trying to find it. I can't find it. We'll it's, share the um, recipe in the in the yeah, post for the, the podcast. It's from the Grizzly 
Grizzly Bakery in Christchurch. Oh, yeah. such a good spot. Yeah, yeah. they're great. We'll share it. With Where you. is your favourite sourdough uh, loaf in New Zealand? Mm, my one. Wild Wheat's my favourite. Starter in Wellington. Oh, you stole yeah. my one. I really like uh, Catherine. I gave, gifted a loaf of uh, Catherine from Starter's bread to Nancy Silverton. Oh, la da yeah. I actually think mastering sourdough might be one of the great gifts of the original lockdown because, like, once you do it once, it seems like such an ordeal, eh, that you just can't be fucked doing it again. Or it's, I think it's not till you've made it ten times that you're like, I can do this. Yeah. I can totally fit this into my life. And so, like, when I was trying to say, like, I've got a couple of WhatsApp groups with recipes, and I was saying to people, just – Start a starter. You've got time. Like in 14 yeah. days, it'll be ready for you to use. And they were just like acting like I was the biggest hard out ever. And they're all just like banging out, yeah. what's her name, Chelsea's lockdown loaf. I mean, and I was like, the, shame on you. You've got time. One of the kind of things that I hated going around social media was like, oh, my God, now that it's, you know, now that lockdown's over, like you can just, why don't you just buy bread? Like mm. you can buy a good sourdough. Why not just buy it? And I was like, well, on that logic, just buy everything. Like, why make pasta sauce? Just buy a jar sauce. Just buy a jar. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, like, why do anything? Just buy it. You know, like. Well, I think you just have to weigh it up in the context of sure. what your routine's like in two different times. And for me, um, I don't make sourdough now that I'm home, but I do actually make the seeded one because you can't buy it everywhere. So there you go. Are you still baking here? Oh yeah. It's um, since the first lockdown. Uh, it's your favourite part of the day. I think I've I've bought a baguette or two, and that's probably it. Yeah, I, I, it's now just my bread at home. Yeah, I've been baking sourdough for a lot longer than lockdown, as I like to point out. But I don't buy bread anymore, which often means I suddenly have no bread in the house, which is annoying. But I've just made you know the challenge to myself that I always make my own. That's the that's the part of it right you yeah. have to go like okay well in two days <laughs> yeah like i'm gonna need new bread i gotta start this yeah. process now like you can't just go like oh shit no bread let's just yeah. whip something up you i mean know? obviously it's easier for me because i don't have a family to feed and i can just go out and buy shit so but it's a good challenge nonetheless start to finish how long does it take um two days two days i mean that's this you is, can just do it yeah. the night before and bake it and well you could do it yeah if you start when the news starts and you stay up late, it could be ready to go in the fridge by the time you go to bed. Are you an bo- yeah. undercover morning. boomer watching the news on the dot at 6 I'm thinking about lockdown, really. Yeah, there are, sh- there the are quicker, shorter ways to do it, but, you know. You need to feed the starter, wait a day. Yeah. So that's why, um, Simon, when you were like, oh, can you make some loaf for the starter, for the uh, podcast? And I was like, yep. And then I had to do it at work yesterday. But ah. it's all right. You just got to fit it in. But it's, Yeah. It's a lot easier when you're at home all the time for lockdown. So other things happened in lockdown, which is my way of um, seg- it's my segue. Nice. Henry lost his job. Aww. Yeah. Uh, when Bauer Media, the German parent company of, of Bauer Media, decided to evacuate New Zealand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a, a giant Zoom call, right? Yeah, it was a um, 200 and something person zoom call had you had any inkling that that was going to happen that Um, is absolutely hectic yeah i mean i knew something was going to happen i mean you know like the way that we were getting i mean the way that the communication that i had had with the sort of higher-ups during the very start of lockdown you know it was obvious that sort of they were looking at different things and being asked to provide um you know, um, forecasts on different things and how, you know, how much of our budget could we really get away with cutting all that stuff. So I kind of knew something was coming and I had really thought um, initially like, oh, well, it's probably, there are probably going to be some titles cut, you know, like that just seemed like the obvious thing because, um, you know, some of the teams were bigger than others and some of the were more experienced, would have larger payrolls, etc. So I actually thought at the time, like, we were pretty well-placed. Um, we were a pretty small team, um, a younger team, more recent hires. So, like, on the scale of things, we would have been one of the cheaper teams and we'd had a really profitable year. So I thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll probably be, like, pretty far down the list of easy, 
easy wins, you know, not really anticipating a, a, a wholesale cut. I think I said to someone like, oh, you know, they'll probably start cutting titles and, and I don't think, I think we'll be pretty safe from that. Or they'll just close the whole business, kind of joking, you know. <laughs> and that's yeah. Yeah. So I didn't really think that that was about. But then, you know, we got this text saying, um, you know, please make yourself available for the Zoom call. And I was like, okay. But that still could have been like. But hey, you didn't know two hundred people would be on that call. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, our CEO, who's based in Australia, um, came on. You know, he was the only person you could see. And as soon as I saw him and he was just, you know, just generally like a really upbeat, energetic guy. And he just started to talk. And before he, you know, he just started talking about COVID and economics and stuff. And, and just, just in his voice, I just knew like, shit, this is, this is happening. This is it. You know, mm, <laughs> like yeah. he didn't even need to say it. Is it the case that, um, I mean, I don't, I'm not suggesting you know what the, bloody profit and loss looked like necessarily for the whole business, but they say it's a financial decision. Is it the case that there wasn't more fat to be trimmed? Oh, I think so. Like that's one of the things that buzzes me out is that like all these businesses that are um, using COVID as an exa a, a motivation to restructure, they're just like, oh, we've had that old team just, you know, there that we didn't need for ages. Like in hospitality, we don't carry – like one hour of extra labor, yeah. so we couldn't like we couldn't trim the fat anymore. I think you look at it as a as a, it's a stable of um, publications, and you know I don't I don't know the P and Ls of all of of all of them individually, but you would have had you know a handful that were quite profitable, a handful that were like basically breaking even, and then a handful of titles just making a loss, right? Yeah. And that was pre-COVID. So I think if, you know, on the ground in, in New Zealand and Australia, yes, I think they were like, how, what, what can we do to keep this thing going? Mm. But I think if you're in Germany and all you're just seeing is these numbers and you go, okay, well, this is our financial forecast from what lockdowns been into. I felt quite resentful what, about that. Um, what magazines, magazines not being allowed to, publish and distribute like um and how long they thought it would take for the economy to come back to where it was just three months ago so if you go cat's going to take three years i don't know how they were saying three years but like if it's going to take three years for the economy economy to bounce back to six months ago and six months ago it was pretty tight like you're not going to ride out that three years i mean yeah. i'm that's why, like, lots of people were quite angry, and I mean, it, it just kind of made sense to me. Like, is there a particular <laughs> correlation though between media and economics, or is it like the whole world's economy is fucked, so we are too, or is it like, oh, people are going to stop buying magazines as soon as? This oh well, happens? no, because so you know, the sale of magazines is. I would have um, thought affordable so luxury like lipstick, hamburgers, advertising. It's, it's just advertising. So right, you know, like most. It differs from publication to publication how much, like, what your percentage of revenue is from newsstand versus subscribers right, right, versus right. advertising. But ad revenue's just gone overnight, pretty much. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, like, when we couldn't publish and there was no indication of when we'd ever be able to publish again. Um, and it's one thing for Metro, which was a bi-monthly, to go like, okay, well, you know, we had planned to delay our next issue okay, that's one thing. And then that became like, well, what if we just cancel the next issue and skip to the next one? So it's basically like four months away. That's another thing. But when you're thinking about like, I mean, The Listener, for example, you know, it's a weekly magazine and you just go like, okay, well, you're meant to produce a magazine every week. You're dependent on, you know, all these sales every week, this kind of drip of money. And then there's just complete uncertainty about when you'd ever be able to publish again. Mm -hmm. Plus, when you can publish again, no certainty about whether there will be advertising support. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, whether, you know, the, the makers of lipstick and whatever would want to market their goods, you know. Mm, right. Even if, even if they are still selling them, because certain things remained, you know, certain sectors remain really buoyant through lockdown, doesn't necessarily mean that they also want to then spend that money. You know? Sure. 
So why this is relevant to a food podcast is because Metro obviously is a very important part of Auckland's food media landscape. And Metro is coming back. That's uh, right. Under, yeah. the, under <laughs> some yeah, independent ownership and the and editor, editorship of Henry. What's going to look the same? What's going to look different? Um, well, Are you allowed to tell us? Do you know? So, I mean, some of it, yes, and some of it, no, and some of it I just don't know because we're sort of figuring that out at the moment. I mean, what's going to look different um, immediately is that it's going to be a quarterly. It's going to be four times a year, um, and it's going to be a bigger, bigger magazine. So there's basically, you know, there will be as much on a sort of annual basis, as much content or p- potentially more content in the print magazine as there was, but it will only come out four times a year. Um, but things like, you know, we have a lot more freedom independently than we did at Bauer. Bauer, for example, bought, you know, they saved money by buying five years of paper at one time, et cetera. So you, you couldn't change paper if you wanted to do something, all that stuff. So there will be a lot more, you know, there'll be differences there in terms of the food stuff specifically. Um, yeah, that's, that's something that we're talking about a lot just because the food scene looks so different and, um, you know, what's, what is it that we're going to be covering and how, how stable are the things that you're going to be covering? So, for example, like, you know, when we cover a restaurant, um, do we now also have to say, well, this is what the restaurant's like if you go to it, um, and then this is what they do for takeaway, and then yeah. if we go into lockdown again, this is a restaurant that you can order from. This is a restaurant you can't order from. This restaurant might not be there by the time we they go to print. They might not be there, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, um, and you know, part of, I think, like, part of what was increasingly um, a, a differentiated Metro was Metro's ability to be critical and which meant not always, but sometimes negative, Um how appropriate is that now? I mean, I think the other thing is like the the very fine line that a lot of the hospitality industry exists on between, you know, like operating on sort of razor thin margins. That's not new, but what is new is consumers kind of knowing about it. So, you know, like restaurants have historically just a really high failure rate, you know, like they tend not to last 18 months. There's some terrible statistic about like, mm. you know, how More many More than percent. 50%, I think. Yeah, it's, it's really crazy. So it's always been a really difficult and mm. perilous industry. It is probably more so now. But the biggest thing, I think, is the shift in public perception and knowing about that because really like restaurants that close, you know, so six months ago if a restaurant closed – it was probably because you weren't going to it and you had kind of forgotten about it. And then you didn't actually think about it until like you passed it and go, huh, that's not there anymore. And totally, you know, it's been closed for three months. You didn't even realize. Whereas now there are like restaurants are closing for quite different reasons that I think you are just part of the thing is like, oh, I would like to go to it, but I'm not. And it's closing. And I'm very aware that it's closing this week, mm. you know, like, well, that just closed. And, and that's what my husband always says if something's closed and it's like you're gutted about it. He's like, well, how many times did you go there? Were you supporting them? You know, yeah, you, totally. I mean, it's like, oh, totally. gutted, it's closed. It's like, but I went once two years ago. So. Yeah. And I think that's, that's part of like oversaturation, maybe. I mean, partly very much in Auckland and that there is, you know, there has been, particularly in the last sort of, I would say, 10, 15 years, like a really like thriving, an energetic uh, hospitality scene. And part of that energy is like hype and novelty and, you know. Newness. Newness, yeah. And it is like, you know. Yeah, totally. And that's really hard to sustain an industry. So I think, and I think now like we, we look at like there's what's, what's coming is that less restaurants, you know, and is is the amount of restaurants that we've had and the speed of which they open and sometimes close, you know, maybe that's actually been unsustainable for a long time. And yeah. this is going to, in part, um, with a lot of like, 
misery as a byproduct be a kind of correction? You know? Well, that's it, though, is that people's – I think that's the saddest thing about restaurants closing is that people's dreams go down with the ship and so do their life savings. And yeah. so it's like – seems crazy to me that you can walk into Auckland Council and register a food business and walk out and go and open a cafe that day. Yeah. Like I kind of – I compare it to – like, my hairdresser is not allowed to pick up scissors and cut my hair for three years. They have to faff around doing colours and learning about mm. stuff. And that's how to be a, not just good at what you do, but how to understand how to operate as a hairdresser. Yeah. And then it's like, of course, people are lured into thinking it's a hobby or a dream. Or easy um, way to make money, which is the biggest illusion Yeah, yeah. And it's <laughs> because there's zero barrier to entry. So, yeah, yeah in a way, I think that it, there does need to be a protection mechanism Oh, I've, and you know, not, I've, so. I've been exactly that place. Like, um, I, I had my wife and I owned a bar for about six years. The greatest bar ever. Which um, one? DOC. Where was that? It was on on okay, K Road. Right. Where, where were you, Sophie? Where, where Peach were you? Pit. Sophie was in Dunedin. Dunedin. Sophie so was at Gardy's. <laughs> when also we opened that bar, bar, I had bartended two nights in my life mm. before that. <laughs> and, um, the level of my understanding of business was you can buy a beer wholesale for a dollar eighty and sell it for seven dollars. Mm. Isn't that a huge isn't that like Great margin. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, and then like, you know, six months in and um someone smashes the sink, you know, and, no and you're like, to pay for Fuck. It. Um I mean, you know, when we started Bird on Wire, we thought it would be a, a side hustle and we'd keep our other jobs. We thought it would be like a passive income. Yeah. It's just absolutely so it is, laughable. It is ridiculous. And which the opposite of that is equally grim where you need to get a qualification to start a restaurant or something, mm. you know, because that the level of creativity is, is going to suffer. Mm. So there needs to be some kind of balance there. I mean, I think the other thing that we're going to really have to come to terms with is uh, the price of food and the price, you know, the price of drinks, coffee, whatever, um, is, you know, if you want, um, if you want these restaurants and cafes and bars to be sustainable, they need to charge more. They need to charge more. And if if you want the people that work there to be able to be paid through a lockdown or have benefits or you know not not be like in a you know like a completely precarious sort of zero hours contract, yeah. if you've even got a contract situation, mm. um, you know, you can't buy a coffee for $4. Well, it's like, like there's such a mismatch <laughs> yeah. because we've got actually world-class restaurants and our scene is world-class, but we don't have a profession of being in hospitality. Like in Australia, for example, um, there's a huge number of young, enthusiastic, clever, creative people that go into hospitality because that's what they love and they know that they can make a living doing it. Yeah. Whereas here we're like left scrapping about like minimum wage and immigration laws and all the stuff because Kiwis aren't being shown that they actually could make a living for their families if they work in hospitality. But the customer does need to meet them there too. Yeah. I mean, probably... 60 or 70% of the people that worked at our bar went to art school. Um, <laughs> not a 0% of the people that worked at our bar wanted a career in hospitality. Yeah. No, it's like we had this huge like, attrition, like transient staff. The churn is yeah. significant. And now also you've got to, because the standards are rising, there's lots more time and resource that you need to train people. And then you need to have someone that knows how to do marketing all of a sudden. And it's just, you know, yeah. I think there's just a lot. And so the the I think it's good that you said that the public has an understanding that the margins are so razor thin. But there's still so much correction to do. Like people go, oh, sell booze. That's where you make all your money, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, no one's making money in anything. And the same margin is basically applied to everything. So just... You know, just take my word for it that there's you don't see any hospitality operators like laughing all the way to the bank or like on a super yacht in Europe. And yeah, it's because there's just not money in it. So when when we had the bar, um, some people that we kind of met through the bar who were opening a, had recently opened a restaurant, um, 
they, you know, I think we had been open a couple of years by that point and they'd been open, I don't know, six months or something. They were sort of raving to us about this hospitality consultant that they've been seeing and, oh my God, you should see this person. And, and so they had brought in this consultant and she had gone like, oh, you know, so go through the menu, uh, had a look at all the processes, um, looking at their invoices and all that stuff. And she was like, you know, sat them down for their first like thorough kind of talk and was like, okay, so the calamari. And she's like, yep. And she's like, fan favorite. You know, everyone loves it. And she's like, you're paying people $2 to order that, you know? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're literally like, yeah. you're paying doing them, them a favor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause, you know, free food. <laughs> because you haven't accounted like how long it takes to clean it, you know, like yeah. how long it takes to like cut it up, all that stuff. Like, yeah. There is so much of that everywhere. I didn't. We didn't know that our, that food costs should be kept under thirty five percent of your revenue until probably four years into running a pretty big business. Yeah, <laughs> and being pretty frustrated about the fact that the harder you work, the does has no correlation to how much. Yeah. So the, profitability there are, you have. There are things that you can. You know, the more that you sell of them the less money you're going to make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You think that's your sales are going up and that's a great thing, but like profitability's not going up. And if profitability's zero, it doesn't really matter if it multiplies because yeah. it's still zero. Which is all like to bring it back is I mean, really hard to see how that's going to shake out, but other than things won't go back to how they were cuz they weren't working then, it just seemed like they were, you know, like mm. <laughs> um and so they're not they're not going to work now because they weren't working. Except now, you're just going to it's going to be much more visible. So you're at the economic apex of a global pandemic, mm. which is just must be so intense for the hospitality industry at the moment. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of industries that are affected, but hospitality is definitely taking an absolute pelting. <laughs> so you were just on the phone talking to the government about where hospitality is at. Mm-hmm. How how is the industry feeling? Like, is it um, apocalyptic? It's pretty grim, yeah. Um, it's it's really difficult because of the uncertainty for anyone to get comfortable and make any decision about how they feel. I think they're kind of just living in fear and it's like that, um, you know, survival mode, mind frame. So you can't really think about anything else except surviving when your survival's in question. And so um, that's what it seems like, that there definitely needs to be some um, targeted support um, if we want to maintain the industry. And there's lots of um, economic argument for maintaining the industry. Like a dollar spent in hospitality goes a long way downstream in terms of the supply chain, and it also employs a lot of people. So, What does that economic support look like? We've seen interesting things happening overseas, like vouchers being given yeah. out to encourage people to go. The restaurant associations just... Um, given a petition to the government, I think it was two weeks ago, um, called Dine Out to Help Out. I think that's the name of it. And um, it's worked quite well in the UK because no matter how the suburbs will recover faster than the CBD, I think is um, the the paymark data is saying at the moment that um, it's really the CBDs are really struggling. Um, and it's a campaign that means that the government would give you $20 every time you spend that money in a restaurant. So it's motivation to get people back into restaurants. And it's been really successful over so there. So explain that. If, if I go and spent $40 with Millie at, the, at a restaurant, yeah, we would get $20 each or $20 to contribute. If you go and to- spend 60 bucks on a meal, you'd get $40 back from the government for Sweet. it. Just cash in hand. Yeah, a voucher. Buzzy. Yeah, they wouldn't. A, they wouldn't pay money into your bank account, but it would be a voucher that you could use anywhere, any hospitality venue. Okay. At the moment, they're excluding takeaway because um, the purpose of it is to get people back, like bums on seats, and dine-in restaurants because they've all been trying to do takeaways to survive. Mm. But that's not been that doesn't pay the bills. Um, but yeah, hopefully but, it just applies to the whole yeah, industry. Yeah, this kind of brings up how like the hospitality is sort of this fluid thing that forms around like the way that we live and the way that we have lived is that there are lots of people that go to an office, for example, right? So like where there are lots of people working, it makes sense to have lots of restaurants around there because they need to go out for lunch. And then 
maybe a certain portion of those are going to meet their friends after work for a drink, or maybe dinner, or whatever. So, like, lots of people are now going back to work, but are they going back to the office two days a week instead mm-hmm. of five? You know, are they even them staying home one day? Yeah, is you know that's twenty percent hit on revenue during the week. Yeah. So, I mean, so the obvious things like you know. Um, is it safe to be in a room with lots of other people, um, social distancing, putting in, you know, tables that you can't use, all those things, uh, that's one aspect of it. But the other thing is just, like, where are people and where are they going to be? Like, yeah. like, physically, where are they going to spend their time? And if you're working at home, well, you're going to eat lunch at home, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the kind of things we haven't really talked about is, like, what a amazing time this has to be in a supermarket you know <laughs> like, yeah yeah you know like well then they've got a whole bunch people of still other eating. problems yeah that there's lots of problems because they have surges and then they have yeah. no one shopping because they've already like panic bought yeah. and yeah so if, if we're going to sort of broaden it out to like the you know food um more so than hospitality like you know everyone's got to eat and everyone's got to buy things to either make or just you know whatever to have it made for them the way that we, lots of us did eat before, is just going to have changed, and it's mm. really hard. I think it's really hard to predict what that's going to look like. And but in a way, I think that I actually do feel optimistic about um, the future of hospitality because I think that although it was taken away from us, it also highlighted how much we rely on it and how much we love it and the period of time between Auckland's first lockdown and second lockdown was really successful for hospitality um yeah, yeah. um mainly around the fringes but in um the CBD they were just getting back to their levels that yeah. were 2019 so um you know in the same way that some online businesses surged and they're like yes yeah and then as soon as everyone got out of lockdown they just like went back to going to the supermarket you know yeah like there was a bunch of businesses that were just right like 400% revenue increase and they're like hopefully we've captured the customer and the customer just went straight back to what they did before but it's like that thing where like when the lock- lockdown when the first lockdown ended and people could go you know there was that brief sort of time at level three or whatever where you could go and get a takeaway coffee mm, yeah. and so many people were just like oh my god this coffee is amazing like, I haven't had coffee like this yeah. in like six weeks or whatever then you start to think like well why not pay six dollars for that coffee it was that oh, good do you know what I mean like, like, <laughs> like yeah. I, I think there is an opportunity to, to just change the perception of value and that, yeah. That, yeah. that that's something that I think like like we have to face and you know yeah it's not just a functional thing, is it? It's not just giving you giving you food. It's like the the whole argument about a coffee is that often people meet for coffee, so they're sitting in a venue, they're being served by a staff member, they're taking a seat that someone else could take. It's like you 100% need to be paying $6 for that coffee <laughs> yeah. because it's also providing you with an opportunity to catch up with someone that you want to catch up with, and you wouldn't do that without that coffee, so... You yeah. know, it's other things other than the actual transactional part of it. Um, yeah, at the same time, you know, like um, a lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of a lot of businesses have their mm-hmm. wage subsidies ending. You know, you know, disposable cash <laughs> is changing. Like, like, so then, to ask those people to pay more for something is also this really like, which then you know, the next step from that is like, do, do these things become, you know, does a, co- a coffee become more of a treat than like? Yes. Like, oh, here's this thing that I... I, I think pay more, but know. have it less often. Yeah. Mm. That's that's the future. Pay more, have less, have it less often, and have less joint selling it. It's got to be, we've got to contract. Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you for joining us, Henry. <laughs> I think that's a relatively optimistic way to go out. Yeah. Um, while I have your ears, listeners, I highly recommend you... Uh, go and listen to the spin-off's new podcast, Conversations That Count, Na Korero Whaitaki. It's produced in partnership with Massey University. And this episode is about the cannabis referendum and what the legislation looks like should it pass. Uh, very important conversation that is happening at the moment. Join us next month. It's going to be early next month to celebrate Korean Thanksgiving. 
We're having Yu Tak Son join us. Um, we'll be talking about Korean food, the revolution of Korean food, racist Auckland restaurants, all the exciting stuff Ooh. like that. Nice. Can you do an episode on um, cannabis legalization and the snacks Cooking that are going to fall out from yeah. that? One of the <laughs> yeah. things I've like, there's some good business does. opportunities there yeah, to yeah. be like. I think they I've always wanted to have a scientist on the podcast and talk about the munchies and what they are and how yeah, they're There's it a in. lot of regulations around what they're going to be able to sell though. If no, it but passes, like, in terms of edibles. just what is the best oh, food no, no, to I go and eat edibles, after you I get glazed? Like, you know, burgers with pancakes in them or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know? Cool. I, was, I was told that if you don't eat when you get the munchies, you go blind until you eat. <laughs> and the first time I got stoned, my friends were like, oh, "Where's Simon gone?" I gone upstairs and they found me in the kitchen just sculling wheat bix so oh that I God. didn't go blind. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> a friend of mine used to see a personal trainer, and the personal trainer's advice was. Get really stoned, don't eat, drink lots of water, and work out. Wow, that's what Mark Kelleher did all through university. Right? Does it speed up your metabolism or something? That's 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 the I've idea. I've never heard that theory. before. That's, that's interesting. This is an episode. Let's do it. Let's work out. It's a bonus like, episode behind yeah. the paywall. Kakite, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Tina. Thanks, Henry. Thank Bye. you, Tina. Kakite. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.